It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That created starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself to the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Speed it up and I've got no seats. I'll land a fucking platter with the fear fight down. I fire in the fire, Mr. Sixth Seven Gangs, and the government for hire in the combat site. But it wasn't coming in a hurry, Mr. Jury, beat it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. What dark heart? I mean, it is bright out today, it's a beautiful sunny day, and there's no dark heart of the city, there's a bright, light, (laughs) wonderful heart of the city today. And we're in South Florida, that's why it looks like that. That's right, and this is the hour of bloom, because I'm acting very bloomish. When I actually should be doomish. <laughs> All right. Well, this is the Survival Medicine Hour by Doom and Bloom. Or unless you want to say it's the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour. I think uh, that's what you usually say. That's what I usually say. But I also okay. add yes. that we are a warren of wonder in a worrisome world. It is a worrisome that's world. That's right. Uh, but I, Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, Feel that we can get over it together. You're going to find on our doomandbloom.net website, by the way, over a thousand post videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. Absolutely. And I am Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy, and I am an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. That's absolutely right. And together we are the dynamic duo, the medical matrimony, the hosts with the most. And we're here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Speaking of babies, our parrot laid an egg today. <laughs> That's so funny. What a the heck? A 30-year-old parrot. Yep, we this thought This is the for, second time that yep. we've, we've gotten eggs. Eggs out of them. And for the first 30 years we of keep our saying parrot's him. Li- life, yeah, we've called it a him. But actually, I'm never going to stop calling it a him. We just, she's a she. She's a she. So how about that? It's a beautiful, perfectly formed little egg. It looks so like a chicken egg. Cute. Except, I guess, about half the size or a third of the size. Probably it's a really third. I definitely very, say a third of the yeah, size. Yeah, a third of the size. Just incredible. Well, so anyhow. Cute. Friends and neighbors. But we have no boy parrots, we so we no, will not, have, not be not having have grand baby, baby parrots. parrots. That's right. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? With a precocious possum, well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice. 
for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Yeah, but when modern medicines get up and go, has got up and went, well, because of some grid-ending event, you're going to have to figure out how to keep people healthy without all the gizmos and gigaws of modern technology. If that happens, will you have the knowledge? Will you have the training, the supplies to become the highest medical asset left and keep your family sound despite times of trouble? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you something. It's time to show the world that you can do it, that you can get some training, get some education. While you're at it, how about a quality medical kit to go along with all that? You'll never have to prove your fortitude to me in any other way if you do. And I can't think of a better place to get that quality medical kit than Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you deal with medical issues you'd face in any disaster and make your home, your workplace, your school, your church safer. And they are indeed designed by an honest-to-gosh medical doctor and nurse practitioner. Look at the contents. Compare our kits with others for their quality, their contents, their storage. And if you want more proof, check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net. See what folks just like you have to say about our kits and service. On top of all that, our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings accounts. Just look at our special HSA, FSA section in the store. Hey, you know, there are various infectious diseases that can confront the caregiver in off-grid settings, and they can affect various organs in the body. Of One of them is the liver. You might think that the liver is the largest organ that you can possibly have, but it isn't. What's the largest organ? That is your skin. skin. Yes, that is an organ, your skin. Despite that, the liver indeed is the largest organ that resides inside your body. And it's located, if you ever wonder, it's on the right side of your abdomen, I guess just under the lowest rib would be a good place to look for it. Now, the liver is susceptible. That's funny. It would be a if good place to, to look for it. If you're wondering where it might be, you know, it'll probably <laughs> it's a good be place around to there. start. If it's yeah. not there, uh, then you probably need to contact your doctor. Or, or Area 51 because you might have an alien <laughs> on your hands. Or and if you find you might two be an of alien. them, yeah. you find know, two livers, that might definitely be, need to report that. That would be impressive, yes. So the liver is susceptible to all sorts of damage from all sorts of things, from drugs and alcohol. Well, the poor thing is constantly under attack from poisons and pesticides and breaking down medicines. And yeah, as a matter of fact, that is a really hardworking organ. You're right. It has a lot of different functions. I think in the book I list like a dozen of them, and some of them include functions like helping your body eliminate toxins, just like you said, and digest food and store energy and all sorts of stuff. Viruses also can cause big issues with the liver and the inflammation that they cause is a condition known as hepatitis. So hepatic refers to anything related to the liver and itis refers to inflammation. So inflammation of the liver, hepatitis. Uh, There are various types of hepatitis. They're listed as A, B, and C, which is what I learned about in medical school many years ago. But there's also D and E now. And each of these has its own characteristics. Uh, Some are related to poor hygiene. Others are from poorly prepared food or contaminated water. 
and some are even transmitted sexually. And all of these cause liver dysfunction and scarring. When your liver starts malfunctioning, symptoms can range from not much, but they can also become very life-threatening. They include a number of different things. By the way, you're also contagious from most of these types of hepatitis. But some of the symptoms that you might see would be loss of appetite, nausea and vomiting, diarrhea, fever, dark-colored urine, and pale gray bowel movements. That, that is sort of a funny thing that it does to your bowel movements. It actually changes them so they're a grayish, almost grayish-white in color. Uh, but it changes the color of the urine so that it's a sort of a dark brown. You can get stomach pain. It causes you to be itchy. And you get these muscle aches and joint aches and fatigue and a general ill feeling uh, that we call malaise. But you can have one or more of these symptoms. You can have an entire subset. You can have all of these symptoms. Everyone's a little different. But the hallmark of hepatitis is something else. And that is something called jaundice. And jaundice is a yellowing of the skin and eyes that occurs as a result of an excess of a certain substance in your body called bilirubin. And bilirubin is formed by the breakdown of old red blood cells in the liver. Normally, a healthy liver eliminates bilirubin as part of the process of sort of detoxifying you from having these old red blood cells, dead red blood cells are dying in your system. So if the liver cannot do that because it's inflamed or you have damage to it, you accumulate this bilirubin. And when you accumulate this bilirubin, your skin and your eyes turn yellow. Let's talk about some of the different types of hepatitis. Uh, hepatitis A virus, very well known, is caused by what we call oral fecal contamination. That means that it can be gotten by, let's say, drinking water that has particles of the bowel movements of infected individuals. And by drinking that, you well, you are going essentially from the feces of one person and into your body orally. And that's pretty terrible. It starts off as a flu-like syndrome and then quickly manifests many of the symptoms that I just mentioned a couple of minutes ago. Uh, it takes about two to six weeks for it to show up after being exposed. And you can also be exposed to it, by the way, sexually. It depends on what kind of sexual practices you have. In survival, failing to purify water properly, that can cause an epidemic of hepatitis A. In normal times, it can happen too, though. A, let's say a restaurant employee who doesn't wash his hands after using the bathroom can pass the disease along to customers. Oh, I'm so that's why you see, right? Well, oh that's why God. you see that sign. Oh, no, I know. In restaurant bathrooms, I know. Don't you want to just wash your hands. grab the hair of anyone who walks straight out of the bathroom without wa washing their hands? That's absolutely right, guys. I saw some lady when we were over in Kate's Cove at the bathroom. She came straight out of the toilet and walked out. I was like, oh, my God, that's so gross. Uh, I don't care what you do in the bathroom. When you're in the bathroom, before you leave, you need to wash your hands. I don't care if you're just brushing your hair. You've touched surfaces in there. That's right. And by just the way. Brush, just wash your hands. It's just the safest thing to do. And so what should you do if get out has exactly. a handle? If it has a handle, that well, means even if you wash your hands, you're going to recontaminate I, yourself. What we have always done is use a paper towel. The same paper towels that you just dried your hands, so you don't have to go get a brand new one. The ones that dried your hands are fine. Just instead of throwing them away immediately, open the door. Now, the problem is a lot of these bathrooms are now trying to save our planet 
by just having the dryers. So those aren't any good for that. What you have to do at that point is think about it. When you walk out of the bathroom, you need to get a wad of toilet paper, put that off to the side, wash your hands. You can still use the dryer, but then pick up that toilet paper from a surface that hasn't touched anything and then use that toilet paper to open the door. So you can put the toilet paper off to the side until you finish, like I said, washing and drying your hands, but then open the door. Hopefully the door pushes outwards and then guess what? Don't use the palm of your hand. Use the side of your arm, your shoulder, mm -hmm. your elbow, your upper arm, your lower arm, anything that doesn't allow the palm of your hand, your fingers to touch the surface of the door in any way. Your foot, I've opened doors with my hip, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes. any, anything that's not your hand. You know, I think that what the advice you just gave is super, super important because there are all sorts of viral particles that can last for hours on a bathroom door handle. Yes. So for goodness sake, listen to what Amy said. I think you should rewind this and listen We've to her We've all strategy. seen people open, uh, leave bathrooms without washing their hands. So you know that those doors are nasty going out. Well, let me tell you more about hepatitis A. Hepatitis A, the funny thing about it is that if you're a kid and get mm -hmm. hepatitis A, you almost never have symptoms. <clears throat> it's almost always asymptomatic. So, so but adults, your if you're young an adult, liver right, is right, somehow more can process it tolerable pretty well. Ninety <laughs> percent of kids don't get symptoms. Eighty percent of adults do, mm -hmm. however, and so that is a pretty amazing thing. Hepatitis A does get better without treatment after a few weeks, but those few weeks are going to be miserable, miserable. with all of the symptoms that I mentioned. You feel nauseous you feel you feel ill you, you don't have energy to do anything and you oftentimes have this low-grade fever that just won't go away you don't feel like eating it is uh, it's a mess so it's important to prevent it we're going to tell you how to do that once we talk about the other types well hepatitis b is the other one that's very well known and uh, hepatitis b is spread by exposure to infected blood particles or certain fluids like men's uh, sexual fluid and vaginal fluids in women. Uh, and the symptoms are usually not much different from hepatitis A. Hepatitis B, however, is not self-limited like hepatitis A is. It doesn't just go away and, and that's it. Hepatitis B can cause scarring in the liver that leads to a chronic condition known as cirrhosis. Cirrhosis of the liver. And in cirrhosis, the functioning cells of the liver are replaced by these non-functioning nodules. And these nodules don't do anything to perform the functions of a live liver, essentially, essentially like having part of the liver be dead. Cirrhosis is also, by the way, caused by long-term alcohol or drug abuse. If you are a long-term alcoholic, you may develop that. And in, in those folks, you not only do you see things like jaundice, the yellowing of the skin and eyes that occurs as a result of liver malfunction, but it can also lead to something called ascites. Now, ascites is an accumulation of fluid in your belly that causes the abdomen to swell out like you're pregnant, even if you're a guy, uh, and it also causes things like swollen legs, a lot of other symptoms. Once you get to that point, you have probably very little functioning liver tissue left. Now, hepatitis C, we've heard uh, a lot about that lately because they have now a vaccine for this stuff. Now, hepatitis C, it can cause either an acute or a chronic infection. It's seen most often in older folks. 
Uh, interestingly enough, more between people born in the years 1945 to 1965, oh, no. which is sort of interesting. We'll and there. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah, it might be related to um, intravenous drug use or transfusions. Nope, could nope. be related to un unsafe. <laughs> it could be passed. It could have been passed sexually many years ago. Who knows? The bottom line is you don't have any symptoms whatsoever. But despite <laughs> in most cases, but in spite of that the liver becomes damaged over time and can become uh, cirrhotic or have cirrhosis and sometimes leads to complete liver failure. If you look at TV, you'll see uh, a lot of commercials for a vaccine. Now It's now active, actively being promoted by the government that might prevent infected individuals from future damage, so make your own decisions about that. Uh, hepatitis D, hepatitis D virus, which... I didn't learn about it in medical school. They didn't have that back then or didn't know about it. It's unusual because it seems to only occur with those who have an active hepatitis B infection. So you can actually it, it have... Ha it's concurrent. You right. have two infections at the same time. With different hepatitis viruses. And these cause like some major super infection and can be very, very dangerous. It could be life-threatening. So, But it's only seen with people that have an active hepatitis B infection going on at the time. Now, hepatitis E, that's typically an acute infection. It's very commonly commonly seen in people that eat wild game uh, or eat very poorly cooked food, especially pork. It acts like hepatitis A in that it goes away after a period of time, after several weeks without treatment. <clears throat> no, and it I'm might thinking, be spread by oral fecal I'm, contamination I'm as well. I this must be poorly cooked. Yes. What poorly cooked wild game. Yes. Things that aren't commercially available in the grocery store. Right. <laughs> so they probably... So hunters, when you go out there, I have no problem with you eating your food. Just thoroughly cook it, just to be sure. But I don't think that they actually found this as a result of any American hunters or anything. They probably found it in Africa or someplace where okay, they good. don't have a means to cook food thoroughly as well. Well, like, again, this was part of Ebola. Right. It was a, them cooking their their bat meat. Right. They... they hunted bats and they cooked them over 55 gallon drums oil drums and not very they well probably didn't cook them all the way through right. or ate certain areas that were not completely cooked so this is probably something very similar you probably seen sure. mostly in um, countries that are underdeveloped but it could happen here if you do the wrong thing let's talk a little bit about prevention and treatment of hepatitis honestly other in a survival setting other than making the patient comfortable there's not much that you can do in an austere situation regarding hepatitis. The drugs used for the condition are immune drugs or antiviral drugs that are simply just not available in any other form and certainly not available to obtain in quantity. It is a big issue. However, you can pra practice good preventive medicine by encouraging uh, certain policies. And so one of these, of course, is washing hands as Amy said, after using the bathroom and before preparing food, uh, you want to wash your dishes with, with soap and hot water. You don't have contamination from poorly prepared food. Avoid eating or drinking anything that may not be properly cooked or water that's not properly filtered. Make sure children don't put objects in their mouth. That is probably a, a reason why kids could get it. Some natural substances may encourage good liver health and could be used by us in an off-grid setting. They were used in the past by our ancestors to treat those with hepatitis. 
Uh, they change diet to avoid, let's say, fatty food, alcohol, of course, alcohol. Zinc supplements may help. So being very well hydrated may help mm -hmm. uh, people who have this condition. Now, there's little hard scientific data proving their effectiveness, but a lot of the natural herbs that may be helpful include milk thistle. That is a very well-known, quote, liver herb. Detoxifant. Yes. Detoxicants. <laughs> milk thistle. I'm not exactly sure what category they put it in, but... I actually do have it at home. Oh, good. Milk thistle. Yeah. Yes, I've seen it. Yeah. Uh, let's see. They also have artichoke, uh, dandelion, which is calendula, right? Mm-hmm. Or calendula. Calendula? Calendula. Calendula. Okay. Tur I always say it wrong. Turmeric, yeah. I mean, you never know why. You never know why. Uh, but you know, Oregon, Oregon, right. tomato, yeah. tomato. <laughs> right. <laughs> Potato, potato? No. Potato, that, potato. No, no, that's we, just <laughs> part of a song, I think. Yeah. Uh, let's see what else. Licorice. We'll do teas made from red clover, green tea. These things are commonly thought of as being useful, or at least were thought of by your ancestors as being useful for inflammation of the liver. And so in times of trouble, you may wind up having to deal with exactly that type of situation. So there you go. Now you know what to use, even if you don't have the fancy antiviral drugs or immune drugs that they have these days. Listen, we're going to have to do whatever we can to stay as healthy as possible. You are absolutely right with regards to that. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, here I am on a different microphone. Sorry about that. I want to welcome today our guest, Jeff Motes. Jeff Motes is a good friend of ours. He's a post-apocalyptic fiction author. Jeff received a Bachelor of Science degree in Electrical Engineering in 1984, Master's in Business Administration in 1994. He is a licensed Master Electrician, Licensed Professional Engineer by training, author by accident. <laughs> he owns and operates an electrical contracting business, and he has provided electrical services to many of the industrial plants and water systems in southwest Alabama, where he's from. Prior to entering the business with his father, he worked for 10 years as a system engineer for the local electrical cooperative. He's authored a popular three-book apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic book series titled Once Upon an Apocalypse, Book One, The Journey Home, Book Two, The Search, Book Three, Gathering Home. The books are available in ebook, paperback, hardback, and audio form, and his books have frequently been on the bestsellers lists in several Amazon categories. Now, Jeff's a strong believer in lifelong learning and holds on to the idea that we should do the best we can with the best we have to live and help those around us live. Understanding that preparedness has three aspects, spiritual, mental, and physical, Jeff has incorporated each of those in various degrees in thought-provoking situations inside his stories. Jeff lives on a small farm in this area near Jackson, Alabama with his wife Donna. Jeff and Donna have three children and three grandchildren. Now here's Jeff. Hey Jeff, you there? Yes, I'm here. Well, Thank you so much for coming on the show, and we really uh, appreciate your sending us uh, copies of the Once Upon an Apocalypse series, books one, two, and three. Uh, I just want to mention the names. Book one is The Journey Home, book two is The Search, and book three is Gathering Home. Let's start by talking a little bit about your background, how it led you into preparedness, and then into writing post-apocalyptic fiction. Well, I'm a, an electrician and an electrical engineer by training and an author by accident. So <laughs> I, uh, I've been doing electrical work with my dad since I was about 12 years old, started working in 
sawmills and paper mills and went off to college, did the college thing and came back as an engineer. So I don't know if I'm any smarter <laughs> for it, but <laughs> I got paid more anyway. <laughs> I totally but understand. I guess my, my first, what really got me into prepping a little, you know, to, to start with was a book by Pat Frank called A Last Babylon. And I read it back in uh, in high school when I was 13 years old, and it always put this little tickler in my mind that hey, you know, things could be bad. Maybe I should prepare a little bit. So that's that's what started my journey. And of course, that was that was a long time ago, about 40 years. <laughs> well, and but how about writing? What made you decide? There's a lot of people that prep, but not a lot of people that write a book, 800 pages. Tell me a little bit about what got you deciding you were going to write about it. Well, I, I really had not intended on writing a book because I'm an engineer and we can't hardly spell our names. <laughs> and uh, I was I was talking to some friends on Facebook one time, and I just I just threw out this this little question: EMP, anybody got a clue? And I had some friends responding, and nobody had a clue. So I thought, wow, uh, you know, I've been prepping, preparing myself, trying to learn and study uh, for a long time. So we started talking about it, and I started mentioning some things to them, and they started asking questions. And I thought, well, I'll tell a short story, just a little two or three paragraph short story about a person on the side of the road, you know, when something happens. And try to use a real life type person and let these my friends see what might would happen to them if they were in a similar situation so i did that i started with just two characters and i was just going to do this over a couple of nights just to spur people's interest uh into being prepared and next thing i know i had all these questions about these different things and i thought well i'll tell the story a little bit more a little bit further and i'll include some of the things that I've been learning uh, through the years and, and why it might be important. And it just kind of grew from there. I just got more and more interest. And that's a fact. I wrote my entire first book on Facebook. Wow. That's a, I'll tell you that writing nonfiction, which is basically what I do is, you know, pretty can get pretty boring, but it's sort of, it's exciting to be able to create characters and to see where their journey takes them. And some of it ends badly. Some of it doesn't end badly for characters in books like these. It must be a lot of fun. Well, it was, it was a lot of fun doing it. And, and, and some of the good, you know, what I really enjoyed about writing those, those stories were I, I took information from people like you, you know, that wrote, factual things and actual useful information and try to embed it into a story that, you know, people could say, Hey, Hey, this is, this is the way this could apply. This is, this is how this stuff actually works. And, uh, so yeah, that's, that's, I, that's what I use. That's how I used my stories was to relate information, uh, about preparedness. Well, let's talk a little bit about what actually happens in an EMP, the disaster event that you chose for uh, Once Upon an Apocalypse. Uh, tell us what happens in, e in an EMP and uh, what 
the average citizen would expect or in terms of how their life changes uh, pretty abruptly, I would think. <laughs> yes. Uh, it, an EMP, electromagnetic pulse, it's uh, the results of a high-altitude uh, nuclear explosion. And it's a plausible situation. They've actually done some testing in various, I mean, in remote places. Uh, I guess it was more accidental testing uh, to see what it what the effects were and what it basically does, it sends out a huge electromagnetic pulse through the atmosphere and damages electronic equipment. Now there are experts out there who disagree on the severity of what the damage would actually be. I'm not an expert. I study experts and, and I understand that they disagree with it. There's possibilities that all electronics will be destroyed. And then there's some possibilities that, uh, a smaller amount would be destroyed. But in particular, the uh, power grid has uh, vulnerabil vulnerabilities uh, in both cases, whether it's an extreme, uh, the extreme scenario or the, the not so extreme, the, the power grid is, is subject to damage, extensive damage. So, I mean, it's a possibility that if an EMP was to occur, that, you know, we could be transported back to the 1800s. Oh, absolutely. I, I totally agree with you on that one. I, I know what you're saying. I've, been, I've read experts say that, well, you know, if the car is not on at the moment, there's a, a good chance that it will start. I think they all agree that if every car that's running actually would basically stop functioning and, a lot of, and of course, a lot of other things as, as well probably would take a good decade to try to manufacture a power grid again. I think it would be almost almost impossible to do, at least in, in a, any kind of stable society. I don't Actually, I think that that probably would occur not in a decade, probably in about 10 days. And I think that we have to be very prepared for that. But are we prepared? Are we prepared as a nation for such an event? Well, I, th I look at individuals, and I, I think – I don't think most individuals are prepared for very minor emergencies and a nation is made of individuals. So as a nation, I think we're very ill prepared. And I, I, you know, there's, there's a lots of vulnerability and with our society, like it is, it's so interconnected and interdependent, not just with the electrical grid, but with the computer systems, with the supply chains that are uh you know you, you don't have the stores of goods and materials in your town anymore it's it's somewhere else and, and it has to be shipped in on a daily basis if that gets interrupted for any period of time then uh you know chaos is going to ensue you know they say write what you know you certainly have done that by writing about your home state of alabama and as well as an electrician an engineer about writing about a power grid catastrophe. One thing I really liked about the book is that you mentioned uh, a couple of my favorite books growing up. You, you don't mention the book itself, but you mentioned the line, fear is the mind killer. And that's from, a, from one of my favorite series growing up, or at least the first time I read that line, Frank Herbert's Dune. So who yes. are your influences in terms of your writing style? What are your favorite books? Well, there's been a lot of books that's influenced me through the year and helped shape my character. And I, I can say Louis L'Amour Westerns have 
kind of shaped my character, Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, in, in my early childhood. Uh, Dune, I didn't, I didn't get into Dune until I, I was a, I was an adult, but uh, it, it, it made a big impact on me, especially his first book. And then, as far as post-apocalyptic books, uh, there's three that's really stood out to me that's kind of spurred me an extra step. Every time I read one of them, one was The Last Babylon, and I read it back in mm-hmm. 1977, and then Lights Out by David Crawford, and Going Home by A American, off, uh, it's Chris Weatherman. Chris Weatherman, yeah. He writes as A American. <laughs> so those those three books have really spurred me to rethink different parts of my preparedness plan. And so th- those have been you know, I, I would suggest anyone read those books. I think they're all they're all good books. I've read read two of them. I have to admit I haven't read Last Babylon, but now that you mentioned it, I'm definitely going to check that out. Well, tell us a little bit about your main characters. Who who are we talking about, or who are we following in in, in this book series, Once Upon an Apocalypse? Well, I've got actually I've got four main characters, or you could say five, but four that's going to be continued on in the storyline. And it's it's interesting uh, the way I, I I got their names, uh, Jill, and uh, there was a character in the first book also named Jack. And when I was writing this, I was just writing it kind of for fun. So I got their names from Jack and Jill, Jill. The nursery rhyme. <laughs> and then uh, John Carter, who's uh, also a, a main character, it actually becomes probably one of the most prominent characters in the series. Uh, he was an afterthought. I just kind of decided to throw him into the story, and then and he just developed. But uh, his his name came from uh, my favorite all time character, John Carter of Mars. Of Mars, right? Yeah. So it's uh, that's that's kind of where the, those characters came from, and then of course their children are main characters as well. And I, I really like the idea that you wrote the book all in uh, basically first person, each chapter voiced by a particular character. And there are a lot of way, different ways to write it. You could have written it all in third person, you know, just describing what they were doing and things like that and what they were thinking. What made you decide to write your book that way? That I thought that was very interesting. Well, uh, probably probably the main reason is I, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> I just started writing, and actually, I wrote my first book, my very first book, uh, which was the first book in this series. It's completely rewritten now, but I wrote it in the second person, which was which was uh, interesting. Uh, huh. But I didn't have any professional help, and I, I, what I was trying to do was put the the reader in as a story as a character, so they could kind of feel what was going on. I didn't want them to actually, you know, be looking in on the scene i wanted them to try to experience the scene for themselves so that's that's the reason i wrote it like i did uh, like i said I, my, my first book was written in the second person which is very unusual i didn't know i was an engineer i was writing for family and friends oh. uh, but i published it and I, I had a i had an editor it was a retired magazine editor that that helped me out. I, did, I didn't realize at the time he helped me a lot, but I didn't realize at the time there was a big difference between a book editor and a magazine editor. And uh, I first published it. It was a second person uh, story, 
that that is no longer available. But it did pretty well, but I got a lot of negative feedback about the second person. There are always haters out there, Jeff. You can't pay attention to them. you got to follow your muse. My next question for you is, it's interesting in your book series that we're not covering five years, ten years over the course of the, the series. We're covering about two weeks, right? That's right, two weeks. Three books uh, cover two weeks. And things go badly very quickly. Do you think that's what would happen in real life? I think uh, it's a good possibility. Uh, we can look at what happened in New Orleans after Katrina. That deteriorated very rapidly. And that was a regional, a very regional disaster. Actually, I was supposed to be there that weekend. We had a uh, transmission and distribution power conference going on that weekend. It got canceled because the Katrina came in, uh, I think, like on a Thursday or Friday. But the very place where we were supposed to be meeting, there were people getting raped. Oh, my God. And, you know, and that just happened almost overnight. And that's with help coming. That's with the phone systems working. That's with police still being able to communicate with each other. If we if you go to a situation where there is absolute absolutely no communication, no means of communications, uh, it's going to be bad. It's really going to be bad, and and that's why I tried to put these scenarios in my stories. I know uh, some of them's you know pretty intense, but I'm 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 trying to make people aware that they're going to have to be responsible for their own safety. Uh, they're not going to be able to call the police. They're just not going to be able to come. It's going to be really a hell of a time if something like that really happens. I, I agree with you. I think it will happen very quickly. I, I always think that society is only uh, two or three weeks away from cannibalism. I, I can tell you that much. Yeah, and, and I, I tried to – I was really – when I was first writing, most of my friends that were asking questions were, were women. So I I tried to drive in the point, you know, in, any collapse of society, all you got to do is go back and look at history. You can look at the news. Women and children are abused to to a great extent when such an event like this happens, when civilization changes, even if it's on a minor scale. So I, I tried to drive that home because I, I don't want my friends to find themselves in that situation. I don't want them to be defenseless. And so that's, that's the reason I kept hitting on that point throughout. I would wonder what you would consider to be the most important item. I, and I think that you mentioned in your book something for personal defense. Absolutely. Absolutely. There, there's a, I have an axiom that I put in the book. It's, it's not unique to me. You can go to survival forums and they have this in some form. Somebody else has developed it. Okay. I just modified it for, for my story. And it's that you can live, uh, Three weeks without food, three days without water, three hours without shelter, three minutes without air, and three seconds without a defensive weapon. And so to me, the, my very first priority is to be able to defend myself because if I'm being attacked, I only have a few seconds to respond. So it doesn't matter if I'm going to run out of water in three days if I can't live the next three seconds. So to me, a personal personal defensive weapon is, is the highest priority. Now, 
that might be different things to different people. Depends on where you live. For me personally, it's a it's a handgun, but uh, you know everybody all have to see you know about their own individual situations. Well, I guess it depends on what they're most comfortable with, what they've got some skill and training in. Uh, and I think most for most people that would be uh, that would be a handgun. Uh, I think uh, there are not a lot of people that are going to be walking around with quarter staffs as their defensive weapon. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, no. but it may come down to that one day. <laughs> you know, it, there's a there's an excellent book out by Tim Larkin mm-hmm. titled "When Violence Is the Answer," and I've I've read it this year. I, uh, and it's it's a great book, and it talks about the use of violence as a tool. Uh, and one of the lines he has in there is that violence is seldom the answer, but when it is, it's the only answer. So I, I would encourage everyone to read that book as well. And it doesn't talk about handguns. It doesn't talk about any of that kind of stuff. It talks about mindset. And it does talk about some uh, hands-on things uh, that people can use as a defensive tool. So it's not just a firearm. It could be a you know, it's more of a mindset than anything else. Well, I'll tell you, I actually wrote a, an article, and I think I actually named, I think I actually called it When Violence is the Answer, and was talking about situational awareness and the OODA loop and, and all that. Uh-huh. I wrote it around the time of that Orlando nightclub shooting, and it lasted for three hours, which was not very unusual for a mass uh, shooting event. It just amazed me that people with bottles, you know, in their hands and, and glass, bar glasses in their hands and, and cell phones couldn't rush this guy throwing their bottles at him, whatever they could, and maybe that might have stopped or or decreased the amount of casualties. And I, and it's true that there are times when, when violence is the answer, you have to act and you have to act quickly and you have to act decisively because we're not used to being violent on a daily basis. If we hesitate, well, that could mean the difference between life and death, as it as it did for all those poor folk that were in that nightclub shooting, and Absolutely. of course the many and the many shootings that we've seen after that. You know the uh, shooting. Uh, I can't remember which airport was it, where it was at. The one in the airport down in Florida was that in Orlando as well. Yeah, then Fort Lauderdale. Fort Lauderdale. That was actually the airport that we take in and out. We were in that baggage uh, rack area. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times we've been there right where they were, this guy was shooting those people. Yeah, I, I heard you mention that in a podcast I was listening to uh, the other day. But one of the things I took from the video, they had a couple videos of that guy. And when he took his gun out, they actually had a video of that, and he started shooting. There was somebody standing behind him. And when he started, they turned and ran the other way. And mm. I can't help but think, what if that person had attempted to tackle this guy and then others had attempted to tackle him? If Instead of running away, you fight the threat. And I'm not a defensive expert, and I'm not giving anybody any advice, but I just can't help but think if that person had acted, how many other people might have lived? But... You know, you, you you mentioned those decisive action and quick action, and that goes back to, to another book that I've read. It's a very good book. It's a very short read by Jeff Cooper, 
titled Principles of Personal Defense. And I encourage everyone to read those, too. Actually, I'd rather you read those than read mine, but uh, I'd like <laughs> for you to read mine as well. <laughs> read them all. They're all That's great. Right. <laughs> I would have to say that books that, you, that you've written actually paint a really, I think, realistic picture of what, what would happen. I think things would go badly very quickly. I mean, I, even on the first day, you have a number of your characters that are not close to home when the books start. It's a daunting challenge to, to try to get home in these kinds of situations, and sometimes you have to depend on the charity of strangers, and sometimes uh, uh, you have to defend yourself against the people that are going to take charity from you whether you want them to or not. That, that's right. When, when people become desperate, they will do desperate things, and you need to be able to respond to that. And, and the reason I, I chose to have these characters away from home is how many people think nothing about getting in their car and driving for an hour, two hours to go to a concert or go to a mall or go see a movie and carry nothing with them. Uh, maybe they got a pair of flip-flops on. And, and, and if something was to happen, how are they going to get home? So that's, that's the reason I chose that to try to try to get into people's mind that, Hey, just because it's two hours by car doesn't mean it's going to be two hours. Uh, you have to walk home. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that struck me right in the beginning of the book that, that oh my gosh, this person is X miles away from home, and uh, what are they going to do? Yeah, most people, may, maybe they have a, a bottle of water in their car, or maybe they have a Snickers bar in their car or something like that, but most people that are not prepared, I mean, don't know or, or don't make sure to have some of the basics, sort of a get-home bag. Absolutely. I mean, and, and a lot of them don't have anything. They, they may have a drink, but that, that might be it. Well, I'd say hopefully, you know, if someone will read the book, they'll take heart to it. And, and actually, I've had people stop me here in town and others that have contacted me from all over the country that say, hey, you know, after reading your book, I've got a get-home bag in my car. And and for me, that's that's been very rewarding. That's made that's made it uh, all worth the effort. Reading books like your series, The Once Upon an Apocalypse, I think that is one of the main things in which people get information by seeing what characters have to do to survive in these kinds of circumstances or, and to get home. Uh, well, these are things that make people think. And I think you've done a great job of making people think about what would happen in situations like this and how they would get started. Now, you got three books here. They only cover a couple of weeks now. Does that mean there are more in the works? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm working on a fourth one. I'm, I've been running a little behind. A lot of things in life have gotten in the way, but uh, I've got a fourth book in the works. They're going to speed up a little bit because uh, I, I know we don't need to spend, <laughs> spend another three books on the next two weeks. But, uh, yes, I've, I've got more and more in store because the, the first three books really cover people away from home getting home. And it covers some family who were in the vicinity home but still not at home. And the fourth book is going to pick up a, with how a community is trying to survive together. And that is one of the most important things, too, is that when you have a group, there's all sorts of dynamics. There's all sorts of uh, logistics that have to be 
taken into account. And, and most of the time, these folks don't live right next to each other, and they have to actually figure out where they're actually going to live uh, as a group. Because sometimes you, ha you have to have enough people to man the walls, as they say. That's right. And it, I suppose people could survive as individuals out somewhere. Uh, but in the areas yeah. that we're in, I think it would be very difficult for a person to survive alone. Now, I'm not saying they couldn't do it, but I think you're going to – you're really – going to need uh, uh, a community we'll call I'll call it a community maybe a group you call it what whichever one you want but of people working together uh, is what's going to make make things happen I think I'm not saying it's impossible but boy it would be a miserable existence probably akin to something like naked and afraid <laughs> and I'm afraid you're not going to see me naked anytime soon <laughs> no. Jeff and our listeners out there well, I actually had a had a uh, I don't know if what you call them someone who was casting for that show actually contacted me and hey hey are you interested <laughs> in that I thought no <laughs> crazy baby wow <laughs> and, yeah and the thing the thing about that I'm thinking you know it, it's got no root in anything that's uh, rational because I cannot think of any disaster that I could possibly be in that I wouldn't have clothes. Right. You have to look at it. When, when you look at that show, it's basically it's a contest to see who can starve the least for three weeks. But I don't see any of those people being able to live six months, a year, the rest of their lives in any kind of situation like that. No. It's no. pretty crazy. I used, to, I used to enjoy Survivor Man when he, you know, he, he would kind of come up oh, with yeah. this little scenario. Uh, and he would survive. I can't remember what it was, a week, I think, or something like that. But uh, I would enjoy that one. But Naked and Afraid, I just I, can't, I couldn't even watch it. <laughs> well, Jeff, we're out of time. I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, the, your books are The Once Upon an Apocalypse series, Book One, Journey, The Journey Home, Book Two, Gathering, uh, no, Book Two, The Search, Book Three, Gathering Home. Tell us how our listeners can get a copy of this great series. It's, they're a terrific read. Okay, well, the the best place or the easiest place to get them are, are from Amazon. Uh, just search my name or search the title, and, and it'll come up. But any bookstore can order the paperbacks or hardbacks for you. The audible, the audio version is on, available on Amazon, Audible, and as and uh, iTunes. And if you want signed copies, which I sell at the same price that Amazon sells. Uh, hard copies for uh, just look me up on Facebook just search my name or search the book series name on Facebook and get, get in contact with me uh, that would be the best way well that's awesome I hope uh, our listeners out there get a copy of this series that I, you guys out there you're really going to enjoy it Jeff thanks again for coming on the show well thank you thank you for having me well, that's all the time we have for this week. We thank you for listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe and Amy Alden and our guest, Jeff Motes. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. 
contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.